This is the third Sunday of Advent, and this morning we will be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Open the richness and the truth and the beauty and the power and the glory of these events that you brought about in your grace and in your love. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we left our story last week, Joseph had just taken Mary to himself, his wife, according to the word of the angel. For Mary was with child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And her child was Emmanuel, God with us. Now, as we open chapter 2, the story has jumped forward quite a bit, perhaps as much as a year, because now Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that Joseph and Mary have traveled from up in Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem in order for Joseph to register pursuant to the census of Caesar Augustus, Joseph having grown up in Bethlehem. And while there, Mary's term came due, and she went into labor and gave birth to the child, Jesus. And they are still living in Bethlehem at the time that chapter 2 opens. And so we have Jesus, Emmanuel, the long-awaited promised seed of Abraham and son of David, who will sit on David's throne over a worldwide everlasting kingdom, and he's a mere eight miles away from Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and no one knows. Herod the king does not know. The religious leaders do not know. How will they find out, and what will be their response? That's what the first part of chapter 2 is all about. Well, the news comes to Herod and the religious leaders in a most unorthodox and unexpected way. It comes from Gentiles, from afar. 
wise men who say they have seen his star in the east and have come to worship the one who is to be born king of the Jews. Verse 2. Who are these wise men? Well, the Greek word is magoi, so these are the famous magi. But who are they exactly? Well, as we will see, they are indeed wise men from the east, but they are much more than that. For Herod and all Jerusalem are afraid of them. That's basically what the word troubled means in verse 3. It means to be distressed from danger, need, or affliction. Well, there's no need or affliction here. They're distressed, they're troubled because of perceived danger attached to these magi. And that's the first tip-off we have, that these magis are not the three lonely scholars from the East that we often picture according to our modern Christmas traditions. After all, if they're just three lonely scholars, Herod and Jerusalem would not be afraid of them, nor would Herod give them the time of day. But he is afraid of them, as is all Jerusalem, and so Herod grants them an immediate audience at the royal palace. So once again, who are these guys? Well, to answer that, we have to go back to the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar has the dream from God depicting the kingdom of God entering the world, during the time of the fourth ancient Mediterranean Empire, that would be the Roman Empire, Nebuchadnezzar is troubled and he doesn't know what the dream means. So he sends for the magus, the magi, along with the enchanters, the sorcerers, the dream interpreters, and the stargazers, all of which are summed up by the term wise men. Daniel chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 12. Now, it's not talking about different groups. It's talking about different areas of learning and expertise possessed by this one group of wise men who served as advisors to the king. Well, what were the qualifications of these men? We find them in Daniel chapter 1, where Daniel and his three friends are chosen from among the young men of the Israelites for special training. Now, they're selected because they're already learned in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and had the ability to serve in the king's court. On top of that, they're going to receive another three years of schooling in the language and learning of the Chaldeans, chapter 1, verse 4. So these wise men were highly educated and accomplished in every kind of learning available. Now, when Daniel later tells King Nebuchadnezzar his dream and its interpretation, and he's the only one who can do so, the king promotes Daniel to be not only a chief of the wise men of Babylon, but a municipal ruler over the province of Babylon as well. Chapter 2, verse 48. Then at Daniel's request, The king promotes Daniel's three friends to be municipal rulers serving underneath Daniel, chapter 2, verse 49. So you see, these wise men were not only counselors and advisors to the king, they were also, in many cases, rulers 
or administrators underneath the king. In fact, our modern word magistrate comes from the word magi. Now, when the Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians, Daniel was retained by the Medo-Persian king Darius, who arranged the government of the empire by dividing it into 120 districts over which he appointed 120 administrators or satraps, all of whom answered to three governors, one of whom was Daniel, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Medes and the Persians were together in what became known as the Persian Empire because over time within the empire, the Persian influence became dominant over the Median influence. And it was within this Persian Empire that the Magi became a very well-defined and extremely powerful institution. The group of learned advisors and administrators that the Babylonians summed up as wise men, the Medes and the Persians summed up as magi. And to give you an idea of their station and authority, it was the magi's responsibility to elect the kings of the empire. And if push came to shove, they had the authority to depose a king as well. Now, when the Roman Empire came into the picture, seemingly conquering everywhere around the Mediterranean world, there was one place they could not conquer, and it was the region of the old Persian Empire east of Jerusalem, across the desert, in what we now know as Iran. And it's not like the Romans didn't try to conquer it. They did. It's just that they were defeated. The Persians, or by that time, by the time you get to the first century B.C. and the first century A.D., the Persians were typically called the Parthians because that was the name of the ruling dynasty at that time that had basically come to rule over what was left of the old Persian Empire. So you'll usually see them called Parthians at that time. But they had the finest horses and the finest cavalry in the world. So they were formidable. They were not to be messed with. Perhaps the worst defeat that the Rome ever suffered was at the Battle of Carhe in 55 B.C., when Rome lost 30,000 men trying to advance into Parthian territory. Rome tried again to establish sovereignty over the Parthians under Mark Antony, who was married to Cleopatra. That was in 37 B.C., and once again, Rome received a humiliating defeat. And the Parthians at that time retaliated by invading and seizing all of Palestine where Judea and Jerusalem were located. You see, Palestine lay in between these two powerful empires, Rome on the one hand and Parthia on the other. So it kind of became like a political football being contested between the two. And during this back and forth, Herod himself had once fled for his life from the Parthians all the way back to Rome. 
And once there, he convinced Caesar Augustus to appoint him as king of the Jews, giving him authority over the whole region. But there was a catch. He would have to take it first because the Parthians were in control of it. You see, the Parthians, when they took Palestine in 37 B.C., they didn't really want to rule Palestine. They didn't really want Palestine. They were just trying to teach the Romans a lesson. And so what they did was essentially just give the land back to the Jews and allowed the Jews to establish their own self-government. And the Jews had, in fact, built a garrison there in Jerusalem. So now here comes Herod with Roman legions to try to take the area of Palestine, including Jerusalem. There's a three-year war. There's a five-month siege. And finally, Jerusalem falls, and Herod uh, occupies his capital city and begins to preside as king of the Jews over a very unhappy, resentful, and rebellious borderland between these two very powerful empires. Now, Herod himself was one of the most ruthless, narcissistic, and paranoid rulers in history. He, the historians say that he only loved one person in his entire life other than himself, and that was his second wife, Miriam. Now, his first wife and, and her son, his son, he ran them off because he found them to be political liabilities. And then he took his second wife, Miriam, who the, the, the scholars will say he's the only one other, she's the only one other than himself that he actually loved. But he had to have her killed along with all of her children so that she could not present a threat to the throne. After all, a man has to do what a man has to do. And on his deathbed, he ordered the slaughter of a whole slew of prominent and well-beloved Jews so that his death would be properly mourned. That's who you're talking about when you're talking about Herod the Great. This guy was a piece of work. He was very paranoid in general, but he was especially paranoid that the Jews might conspire with the Parthians to overthrow him because he knew the Parthians had the might to make that happen. By the time of the birth of Christ, Herod is very aged, and so is Caesar Augustus. And at that time, they had no experienced seasoned generals who were over the Roman legions. So if you were going to look at it from that perspective, you would say the time was ripe for another Parthian invasion of Palestine. Now, in truth, it wasn't going to happen because Parthia was undergoing its own internal dissensions with an aging and unpopular king of its own on the throne. But Herod was paranoid nonetheless. So let's take that historical backdrop now and let's bring it back to our text in the events of Matthew. And let's add a few details that we glean from ancient drawings and paintings in the catacombs of Rome, as well as on ancient vases, as well as ancient church tradition. When we do that, first of all, we have to revise our notion that there were three magi. Matthew does not tell us how many there were. He certainly doesn't say there were three. 
We tend to assume there were three because there are three types of gifts which are mentioned as given to Jesus. But as we will see, Matthew's listing of the gifts does not indicate the number of gifts or the number of givers, but rather the category, nature, and significance of the gifts. And we will come back to that in a minute. One of the ancient vases shows eight magi. Early church tradition of the Syriac church, going back to the second century A.D., says that there were 12 magi. So we do not know the exact number of magi, but there's some pretty strong indications that it was quite a, a bit more than three. Secondly, the indications are that the magi were not riding camels the way that we normally picture it. They were riding horses. And that certainly fits with what we know of the Parthians of that day. They had the finest horses in the world. Camels were used for carrying baggage and supplies. No Parthian nobility such as the Magi would be caught dead on the back of a camel. Thirdly, the indications are that the Magi were not alone, but were accompanied by military escort of Parthian cavalry, the finest in the world. And it would have not been unusual for them simply to have a full regiment with them. That would mean a thousand soldiers on horseback. So once again, that fits with what we know of the Parthians of the day. No Parthian nobility that such as the Magi, the kingmakers of the empire, would travel into enemy territory without substantial military escort. So when we do our homework, we see that we aren't talking about three lonely scholars riding in Jerusalem on camelback. We're talking about a number of Parthian nobility, kingmakers of the Parthian empire, riding on the finest horses in the world into Jerusalem, accompanied perhaps by as many as a thousand of the finest cavalry in the world, a cavalry that has twice completely humiliated the armies of Rome. And these kingmakers of the Parthian Empire come up to the palace and want to know from Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, do you understand why Herod and the entire city was set on edge? And do you understand why Herod would immediately grant them an audience? something he would never do for three lonely wise men. And do you understand why Herod, ruthless and narcissistic though he was, is very careful how he treats the Magi. He does not want a war on his hands, especially not with the Parthians. Now let's add to this that when the Magi meet with Herod, and they ask him... Literally, where is he who is the born king of the Jews? This was a dig at Herod. Even if it wasn't meant to be, he would have taken it as one. Because you see, Herod was not Jewish by birth. He was an Edomian. He was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. His family, a couple of generations up, had supposedly converted to Judaism, but the Jews never really accepted him as a true Jew. 
Furthermore, the Jews would never accept him as a legitimate king, not only due to his immune birth, but also due to the fact that he was not of the tribe of Judah, from which all Jewish kings had to come, pursuant to the uh, prophecy of Jacob in Genesis 49.10, that the scepter would never depart from Judah. So a born king of the Jews would have had a superior claim over Herod's flimsy claim, which really just came down to the fact that he had bribed and finagled Caesar to appoint him as king of the Jews. So Herod is already afraid of the Magi. And now he is doubly afraid because they are claiming the birth of one who is born king, born heir to the throne of the Jews. And they want to pay homage to him as king. So Herod being Herod, he wants to eliminate any contenders for the throne. And he comes up with a plot to kill the born king. He summons the chief priests and the scribes, the scholars, and he inquires where the Messiah is to be born. And they tell him quite correctly, Bethlehem, citing the prophecy of Micah 5 verse 2, that out of Bethlehem of Judah, a ruler will come forth who will shepherd God's people. And interestingly, part of the, the prophecy, which Matthew doesn't quote, it's the very next phrase, says this, his goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. In other words, this born king that Micah prophesies about is not a normal human king. It is one who has an everlasting past. This one is Emmanuel. This one is God with us. After meeting with the Jewish rulers and scholars, Herod secretly meets with the Magi, and he sends them to Bethlehem, telling them to find the child and report back so Herod can supposedly come and pay homage to him as well, verse 8. Now, when the Magi leave Herod, we're told that the star they had seen in the east appears, and they rejoice with exceedingly great joy, verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, the star travels before them, goes down the road to Bethlehem, till it comes and stands over the house where the young child was, verse 9. Now what this means is, just as we had to revise our understanding of the Magi, we have to revise our understanding of the star of Bethlehem. Most popular theories are dealing with very astrological uh, correlations of that time. Supposedly, uh, in about 7 B.C., there was an alignment of Saturn with Jupiter. problem is that's several years too early. Um, this is probably about 2 B.C. when Jesus is actually born. But the bigger problem is this. A normal star cannot do any of the things that we see this star doing in our text. And we just need to really pay attention to what Scripture tells us. Normal stars are many times bigger than the earth, sometimes thousands of times bigger than the earth, and they're millions of miles away. They cannot lead Magi from Parthia to Jerusalem and then disappear, because that's apparently what happens. Otherwise, if it just led them to Jesus, they wouldn't need to go into Jerusalem. 
So the star apparently disappears. That's why they have to go into Jerusalem to the palace to ask Herod, where is the one who has been born king? But as soon as they do that and they get back out in the road, the star reappears. That's why they're so elated with great joy. The star reappears, takes them right down the road and stands over the house where the child is. Moreover, There's indications here that this star is visible to some, such as the Magi, but not visible to all. And again, that's not normal behavior of a normal star. You see, if this star were visible to everyone, you would have had a huge crowd of Parthians traveling to Jerusalem, and you would have had a huge crowd of Jerusalemites traveling to Joseph and Mary's down the road to Bethlehem, but that's not what you have. You have the Magi and their escorts traveling. So there's all sorts of things we see this star doing that a normal star cannot do. So we need to ask the question, what is this star? Well, first of all, the Greek word for star here can refer to any bright object up in the sky. It is not something that refers specifically to astral bodies in outer space, what we call stars. Secondly, while we are not told straight out what this star is, when we search Scripture, there is only one phenomenon in Scripture that matches the behavior of this star. And that is what the Hebrews call the Shekinah the glory cloud of the Old Testament, often called a pillar of fire or a whirlwind of fire, by which God manifested his presence in the Old Testament. Look at an example, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it and radiating out of the midst of the fire. So what was this whirlwind of raging fire that Ezekiel saw? Well, he tells us because as the fire came close, he was able to see inside, and he was able to see that it was not fire at all. It was living creatures. It was angels running back and forth and swirling all around, and they looked like lightning and flaming torches, verses 13 and 14. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like flashing of lightning. Now, the Hebrews called this the Shekinah, which means the presence or dwelling of God, because this is how God manifested his presence in the Old Testament. How did God manifest his presence to Moses in the desert? Well, it was the pillar of fire on the bush. That was the reason why the bush did not burn up because it wasn't normal fire. It was angels radiating the glory of God as he manifested his presence. Exodus 3, verse 2. How did God manifest his presence in the tabernacle when it was built? In the pillar of fire, the glory cloud, the Shekinah. Exodus 40, verse 34. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
Verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. But it wasn't necessarily visible to everyone. When the Israelites first came out of Egypt and came across the Red Sea on dry ground, and then Pharaoh and his army are breathing down their necks, coming from behind them to attack them, what did God do? Exodus 14, 19, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So the same glory cloud, the same whirlwind of fire standing between Israel and the Egyptians is light to the Egyptians. They can see it, and they can see with it. But it is not light to the Egyptians. They cannot see it. It is darkness to them. So the Shekinah, the glory cloud, the pillar of fire by which God manifested his presence in the Old Testament, is described as doing all the different things we see the star doing with the Magi. Things which a normal star, what we would call a star, could not do any of. Furthermore, what is this star doing in our text? What's the significance of what the star is doing? Well, it's leading the Magi, rulers and kingmakers of the Gentile Parthians, to pay homage to the Messiah, the newborn king of the Jews, the promised and long-awaited-for son of David. And that is exactly what God said he would do. Isaiah 60, verse 2. The Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense, And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. And that's exactly what the Magi do when they come into the presence of Jesus. They pay homage. That's what the word worship means here. It means to acknowledge someone as the king and your king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these were all incredibly expensive gifts, and they were the typical gifts that you gave to a king to acknowledge that the king is the king and your king. By giving the gifts and giving them publicly, that's what you were doing, acknowledging you are the king, you are my king. So let's put all this together as we conclude. What we see as we read this wondrous story is that we see all kinds of irony along with the glory and the beauty. You have the king, the king of kings, the son of David, not being born in Jerusalem, which is the royal city of David, but is born in Bethlehem, which is a small village where David lived when he was a lad and a shepherd. 
You have Jerusalem who knows the scriptures very well. They have all the experts there. They know immediately where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And yet they miss the birth of the Messiah altogether. And God has to send them a living telegram in the form of the Magi, these Gentiles. Jerusalem so near does not worship her king. But Gentiles from so far away come and worship the king. The Gentile magi want to worship the newborn king while the religious leaders whom Herod consults, he asks them, why is he asking them? Where is the Messiah to be born? They tell him and then they yawn and they go home. And that's the end of it. And Herod wants to kill him. When the Magi leave Herod, the Shekinah glory cloud appears and leads the Magi to Bethlehem and stands over where the young child is located. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah filled the temple. Thus, the temple in the Old Testament was Emmanuel. The temple was God with us. The temple was where God met with man. The temple was where heaven and earth joined and where one worshipped God. The Israelites were prohibited to offer a sacrifice any place but the temple. So you see, the temple was the center of the world where heaven and earth came together. God's people came to Jerusalem at least three times a year for the feast to worship God. Now, the Shekinah glory, the same glory cloud, is leading worshipers away from the temple, away from Jerusalem, to a small child in a tiny village. And the Magi come and worship God, not by worshiping at the temple, but by worshiping Jesus. Do you see the irony here? And do you see the unmistakable message? Jesus is the true temple of God. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 28, Jacob is in the desert. He goes to sleep. He has a dream and he sees a ladder set up on the earth, going up into heaven, joining heaven and earth. And he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on this ladder. And when Jacob wakes up, he says, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the disciples, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is where sin stops and forgiveness begins. Jesus is where death stops and life begins. Jesus is where sinners meet with the living God and are received as sons. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.